Who is it that put Jesus to death for the sins of the world? It was God, ultimately. He made his own son that sacrifice for sin so that we who believe in him could be forgiven and go free. This morning we want to think about we have no king but Caesar. This is the third in our series and uh, things have changed considerably. A couple years ago I preached through the life of Christ and it began uh, about three and a half years before the, um, the Passover that we're looking at right now where Jesus Christ is crucified. And three and a half years before that event, people were excited about Jesus. He was speaking about the kingdom of God. And they were looking for a king. They wanted somebody to come and overthrow Rome and, and make Israel great once again and make Israel the, the head of all the nations. And Jesus came doing miracles. He healed people. He turned water into wine on one occasion when he was attending a wedding and they, they ran out and, and the bridegroom and the bride were about to be embarrassed at the very beginning of their, their married lives together and Jesus kind of steps in and sort of saves the day for them. Jesus was growing in popularity in the early months, even the early couple years of his ministry. But when he began to come to Jerusalem for that first Passover of his public ministry, people were beginning to wonder. Because when he got there, and the Gospel of John records it for us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it, but John does, he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. And he drove out the money changers, he drove out the, the doves and the other animals that were there, and he said that God's house, his house, was to be a house of prayer for all people. That got the attention of the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, um, the Sadducees. They were kind of the, the leadership there in Israel. And they were thinking, who in the world does this guy think he is? Well, the people grew in their admiration of Jesus for a while, but the leadership kept their eye on him. And then all of a sudden he was doing things on the Sabbath day. He was healing people on the Sabbath. He allowed his disciples to pull off grains of wheat and to rub them and to eat them raw on the Sabbath. That's harvesting. And they really began to get irritated and they began to to look for opportunities to embarrass Jesus. So every once in a while they would send some of their number to try to trap him in his words and put him to the test with various questions. It was just amazing how as the times went by and Jesus' words became more precious and more direct and his actions became more obvious that here was God in the flesh that the religious leaders were growing in their hatred for him. They were growing in their resistance toward him. 
the storm was brewing. John chapter 11, well, let me back up just a little bit. About a week or so before Jesus came into the city, he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And that was like the crowning event. <laughs> Lazarus had been dead and in the tomb for four days. And Jesus makes a trip from Jericho and he comes and Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, were well thought of by the community, the Jewish community there in and around Jerusalem and Bethany, crossed on the Mount of Olives. They were well thought of and well known. And Jesus comes and he says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, oh, I know he'll rise again on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. That was astounding. What a claim. And then Jesus turns and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Jesus demonstrated without a shadow of a doubt that he had the power over death. No one, no one had exercised that kind of power before. And it was right there on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And the Jewish leaders went nuts. That's a technical theological term. John chapter 11 records their action and it records the spirit's commentary on their reaction to this then the chief priests and the pharisees gathered a council excuse me and said what shall we do for this man works many signs <laughs> yeah if we let him alone like this everyone will believe in him well that'd be a good thing <laughs> and the romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What were these guys worried about? They were worried about themselves. They wanted to be in charge. They did not want to lose their place. They did not want to lose control of their nation. You see, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees made up the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the highest ruling body of the Jews. The only thing above them, which they really didn't want to acknowledge, was Rome itself. So their position, their place, their power, their prestige, their authority was unchallenged among their own people. They were the big shots. And they looked at what Jesus was doing and they heard word about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they said, guys, it is slipping away from us. Do you realize that people in power always want to remain in power? I hope that doesn't come as a shock. That's the way it is. That's what politics does. It corrupts. And you get that little taste of authority and power. And suddenly you don't want to give it up. And we see that in every area of life, don't we? We see it in local politics. We see it in school boards. We see it in 
corporate structures, we see it in schools, we see it everywhere. You see it on the Little League ball field. That idea of being in power and retaining power no matter what strikes a chord deep in the human soul. And these guys knew about Jesus. They had seen him at work for three and a half years. They knew everything they thought they needed to know about him. And all they could come to was that this guy is a threat goes on in John 12 there, John 11, it says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now what Caiaphas is thinking here is, We are better off, guys, to kill Jesus then let this thing run its course and the Romans will come in here and, and wipe us all out. I mean, they knew that Rome, their masters, was no power to be fiddled with. You might be able to push Rome a little bit and gain some autonomy and be able to get the images of Caesar out of your temple courtyards and so forth, but you couldn't push Rome too far. They might give a little bit but you try to take too much, and Rome only knew one thing, and that was clamp down hard and kill people. That was how Rome operated. And so Caiaphas is thinking, hey guys, let's kill this fella so that we don't have to deal with Rome. That's a better deal. This is the Holy Spirit's commentary on that in the next verse. It says, now, he did not say this on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for that nation, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Hmm. John, when he's writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Spirit, is writing long after the other three gospels have been written. And I think John is including specifically material in his gospel, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that the others, who were also under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, did not include. And here's one of those little tidbits. Caiaphas was the high priest. He occupied that office. And God used him to speak a true word. It is better for one to die than that the whole people should perish. Now, Caiaphas didn't understand what he was saying. He didn't have any kind of a spiritual understanding in mind when he so said those words. But the Spirit of God lets us know here that what he said in his office as high priest was absolutely true. Do you realize, this is an amazing testimony to God's sovereignty. Caiaphas was not at all trying to fulfill prophecy. Caiaphas, though he claimed to know God, though he claimed to be the high priest of God, had no clue who God really was. If ever there was a man in spiritual ignorance, it was Caiaphas. But God sovereignly rules 
in all the affairs of men. And so though Caiaphas didn't know God, God used him to speak truth. That's amazing to me. But God's not bound. He's not limited. He can use even the ungodly acts of men to accomplish his purpose. And we're going to see that as this continues to unfold. When Jesus came into Jerusalem at Passover in A.D. 33, he presented himself as king. I opted not to preach a message on that today, but we did talk about it last week when he presented himself in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and the people all shouted Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the, in the name of David. They're, they're proclaiming Jesus as king. But public opinion can be easily swayed. I, hope, I, I hang up on public opinion polls. I just, I don't have time for it because public opinion really means nothing. It can be swayed so quickly. And it never gives a real, true and full picture of what people are, are actually doing or thinking. When he comes into Jerusalem, everybody rejoices and everybody's looking for him to throw out the Romans. But Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple a second time. Nothing has changed in three and a half years. He has preached. He has performed miracles. He has called men and women and children to himself. And all that has happened is that the people who were against him became more deeply entrenched in their opposition. They're not interested in the things of God. They're not interested in spiritual things. What they are interested in is business as usual. Keep that temple running. Keep those sacrifices coming. Keep that money exchange going on. Because it's filling our pockets, it's running the economy, it's what our nation does. Does that sound like anything that we're familiar with in our world? We're not interested in spiritual things. We just want to keep the machine running so that we can live a happy life. So that we can have fun. You know, I'm glad that God is working on our benefit and on our behalf even though we don't realize it. That's exactly what God was doing here. While they were discounting Jesus, Jesus was steadily, without flinching, moving toward the cross where he would offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He knew what we needed, even when we didn't. And he provided what we needed, even though we opposed him. That's an amazing testimony to the mercy and grace and sovereignty of Almighty God. Well, 
The Sanhedrin original. Oh, I got to back up here just a minute. Matthew chapter 26 talks a little bit about the Sanhedrin. Again, just two days before the Passover, that would be Wednesday, they have another meeting. Matthew 26, 3 through 5 records it. It says, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But, they said, not during the feast. That's the feast of the Passover. Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, at Passover time, there were about two and a half million more Jews who came to Jerusalem. The place was packed. In fact, there were so many lambs to be sacrificed that by tradition and custom, they started on Thursday the day before, sacrificing those lambs. The actual day was Friday at sunset, that, that, er, at, toward the afternoon, that was the time by law that was to be done. But you can't physically do two and a half million people sacrifices in that short a period of time. And so they began on Thursday, which is why it says that Jesus began to celebrate the Passover on that Thursday. Because he was among the group that had the lamb sacrificed early. Why? Because he himself was the lamb who was going to be sacrificed at the proper time on Friday. So he and his disciples observed the feast the evening before. On Wednesday, though, the chief priests make the decision, hey, we're, we're going we're gonna to get him, but not during the feast. Why? There would be too many people to handle they couldn't quite judge the crowd accurately. And maybe there were more who were in favor of Jesus than who were opposed to Jesus. And so if they make their move now during the Passover, you've got all of the Romans in there because they all brought a legion down when it was ever time for Passover, anticipating that if the Jews ever rebelled, it would be when they were all together. So this is not a good time. Let's hold off. Wait until after everybody goes home, the Romans are gone, the most of the people are gone, and it's just us, and we can get him, and we can get him killed, and before anybody knows what's really happening, the deed will be done, and we can go on with business as usual. Here's another example of God's sovereignty. It had been some time shortly after the raising of Lazarus that... Uh, uh, Judas had gone to the Sanhedrin and said, hey, what are you going to give me if I betray him to you? Judas was losing interest in his Savior. Jesus wasn't producing a kingdom. He's talking about it, but he wasn't producing it. And Judas was no dummy. He could see that the religious leaders were growing in their opposition to Jesus. And he knew what had happened to previous messiahs that had come around. They all got run off or killed or something. So Judas is thinking, how am I going to get out of this with my own skin and maybe a little profit too? And so he goes to the Sanhedrin and he says, what will you give me if I betray him to you? So now they have an inside man. And they weigh out 30 pieces of silver. They count it out there. 
I can't imagine how heavy that must have been in Judas's pocket, if he had a pocket. Probably had the little money bag there hanging on his belt. I don't know what he thought every time he heard those coins jingling together over the next several days as he was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. I don't know what was going on in his mind, except that he had completely closed his mind and heart to anything that would result in his salvation. Judas has turned completely against Jesus because he was never completely for Jesus. I think Judas is one of those that is interested in Jesus, he's interested in spiritual things, and as long as it serves his own purpose and meets his own desires, he's happy to follow along. And he'd even like to benefit from some of the spillover blessing. But is he going to sell himself out completely to Jesus? No. He's always got an eye out for Judas. There's a lot of people that fill churches like that today. Oh, they like Jesus. They'd vote for him in an election. They like what he says. You know, do good unto others. They like that. And they like to give money to the offering plate every so often and feel good about themselves. And they'll show up and they'll sing. And, they, you know, they like the songs uh, that, that sort of talk about heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven. You know, nobody wants to go to the other place, but everybody wants to go to heaven. So we'll, we'll sing songs about heaven. That'll make us feel good. But then some event happens in life where God doesn't perform to their expectations. And they turn and walk away. Why? Because they were never there to start with. They came for all the wrong reasons. And when they were disappointed, they left. That's Judas. Now the Sanhedrin wasn't expecting him to show up, I don't think, on Thursday night. But he couldn't stand it anymore. In fact, Jesus had even identified him as the betrayer. You remember there in the upper room in John, it talks about how Jesus told his disciples, he said, one of you is going to betray me. And they all look around. Nobody knew it was Judas. Nobody stood up and said, oh, well, it's about time you figured out that this guy was a traitor. No, they're all looking at each other and they're looking at themselves and they're saying, is it me? Is it me? And Judas is sitting there quietly. And Jesus says to John, who was nearby, he says, it's the one to whom I will give this little morsel when I've dipped it in the dish. And that was a symbol of honor, to be served that little morsel by the host. Jesus was acting as the host that evening. And he reaches over and he gives it to Judas, which tells me something. John was on one side of Jesus, that they could have this little conversation. Who was on the other side? Judas himself. Right beside the Savior. And yet he betrayed him. Judas goes out. He has had enough. And he goes to the Sanhedrin. And he says to them, guys, Jesus is going to go with the disciples out to Gethsemane. In just a little bit. I will take you to him. This was not what the plan was. They were going to do it after the Passover. But now 
God is in control of things. He's always been. But now we see it. And in spite of the fact that the Sanhedrin wanted to do it differently, they give Judas a cohort of soldiers and they go out and they arrest Jesus. And now they have to persuade the, the people to cry out and reject their king. They know what's going to happen. Because the Sanhedrin itself has no power to put to death. The Romans reserve that to themselves. So somehow they've got to get this thing twisted around to be able to get Pilate to do what they want. Pilate was the Roman governor. So they've got to get Pilate to do what they want to put Jesus to death. Politics at work. Politics at its finest. Politics is never interested in truth. Politics is only ever interested in its own ends, its own support, its own sustenance. And we see it today. And we have seen it ever since the first kingdom was established back there in Genesis chapter 10. Politics is the death of people. So, Judas takes them, goes out to the garden, identifies Jesus, they arrest him. They bring him into the Sanhedrin and they go through a couple of mock trials. They already know what the verdict's going to be. They're going to manipulate things and get the people to cry out against Jesus. So finally, early Friday morning, after the sun has risen, they get Pilate up and they bring Jesus before Pilate and they can't quite convince Pilate the first time around. Pilate thinks he sees a door out, so he sends Jesus off to Herod. Herod entertains himself with Jesus for a little bit, but he's not going to deal with it, so he sends him back to Pilate. And now, here we are, getting close to the middle of the morning. And Pilate is finding himself having to make a decision. Meanwhile, while all these little trials are going on, the members of the Sanhedrin were out influencing public opinion, gathering up some scoundrels, trying to, to sway the crowd to cry for Jesus. They did have one advantage. It was early in the morning. And so there weren't a lot of people up running around yet. And they're successful. Look at John chapter 19 with me. John chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Verse 3. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out. They're leading the pack here. Saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews, which is another way of John referring to the leadership of the Jews. The Jews answered him, 
We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself to be the Son of God. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did, and the Jewish leaders understood it, and that was one of the primary charges that they bring against him. He says he's the Son of God. Well, Pilate was surprised. Verse 8, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? Interesting question, isn't it? I wish some of the Jewish leaders would have asked Jesus that earlier because they at best thought he was a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But where was Jesus from? He was born in Bethlehem. But where was he from? He was from the very throne of God. He was God in the flesh. Nobody ever thought to ask that question among the Jewish people. But Pilate did. Then Pilate said to him, Oh, and Jesus gave no answer. Verse 9. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Oh. You mean Pilate's not even acting on his own accord? Nope. Who's in charge? God. Who is it that put Jesus to death for the sins of the world? It was God, ultimately. He made his own son that sacrifice for sin so that we who believe in him could be forgiven and go free. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Here's politics and its primary function. Whatever we need to, to say to sway the crowd, to sway the decision makers, we'll say it even if we don't believe it. The Sanhedrin refused on so many occasions to acknowledge that Caesar was their king. They wouldn't do it. They had a riot sometime earlier when one of the, the governors of Judea brought in a bunch of shields toward to the temple that had Caesar's image on it. And they staged a riot because they would not acknowledge Rome. And now what are they saying? We have no king but Caesar. Really? You mean politicians will lie to your face? To get what they want? Absolutely. And here it is. So when Pilate in verse 13 heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that's called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was now the preparation day of the Sabbath, of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So we're getting close to about nine o'clock in the morning here. Using the Jewish time. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. So they delivered him over. Now remember that and join me in Matthew chapter 27. We heard a lie. <coughs> now we're going to hear one of the most terrifying things in scripture. Matthew 27, verse 24 it's in the same event that's happening 
We'll pick it up in verse 23. It's then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it, and here it is. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Their words meant nothing to them. They were just saying whatever they thought would move Pilate to accomplish what they wanted accomplished. But God doesn't take it that way. God doesn't just let it slide by. Jesus had previously wept over Jerusalem. You remember when he was coming into the city? As they come around the side of the mountain there, the Mount of Olives, they're descending down into the Kidron Valley to come back up into Jerusalem by the temple. It says that Jesus wept and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you would not. Now your house is left to you desolate. Picture, if you will, one of those old west towns you know where the sagebrush is filling up the old saloon and the hotel there and the dust is about an inch and a half thick and the buzzards are out there perched on the fence and the wind is blowing and the coyotes are howling that's desolation isn't it that's a town that was once thriving filled with life and activity and now there's nothing left that was Jerusalem. About 35 years after this event, the Roman army comes to put down a rebellion. The Jews began in 66 to rebel against Rome. And the emperor Vespasian came with his legion, and he brought along his son Titus, who was a general at the time. And they laid siege to Jerusalem. Well, they started out in the northern part of Galilee, and they conquered a couple of cities there squashed them, and, and then they worked their way down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't going to yield very quickly, and so they built siege ramps, and they laid siege to it. And for whatever reason, the Jewish leaders decided, some of them at least, decided that they were going to destroy some of the stores that they had there in Jerusalem. They had grain, they had uh, water and so forth. They had some stores. They could have lasted in a siege for a long time. But for whatever reason, these, these genius politicians in Jerusalem, these spiritual leaders in the Sanhedrin, uh, decided that they're going to destroy these things and they're going to make a final last stand and it's going to be to the death. Seriously? You're going to shoot yourself in the foot in order to win a victory? That makes no sense. But that's the problem with sin, beloved. Because when we reject Jesus Christ, when we reject Almighty God, something happens in our minds. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. He says they willfully suppressed the truth. What they knew about God they willfully suppressed, so God gave them over to depravity. And there's three times that God gives them over mankind. And the last one, it says, 
And God gave them over to a depraved mind. A depraved mind. They can't even think straight. It's an insanity that takes over those who reject Jesus Christ. Those who reject Almighty God. They don't want God. They don't want His truth. They don't want anything about Him. And that process of rejection results in an insanity that ends in self-destruction. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, uh, he had been captured uh, earlier on by the Romans up there in Galilee as they began the siege. And he was a general in the Jewish army, but he became a historian and he writes a history of the Jews and he writes about this siege of Jerusalem. And he says that it became extremely sad because they turned to cannibalism there in the city. And when finally the Romans broke through, they began killing and crucifying, which was a standard way which Rome dealt with their pro uh, political prisoners. They began killing and crucifying the Jews in such number that the blood ran in the streets so deep that it put out some of the fires in Jerusalem. And they had to stop the crucifixions because they ran out of wood to put the people on. Over a million died. You see, beloved, when you reject God, the consequences are horrendous. And these people who were rejecting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, their own Messiah, their own Savior, in rejecting Him, invited the judgment of Almighty God upon them. And it was and still is severe. The Jews have not yet recovered from that rejection. And Jesus said they will not recover until that day when Jesus Christ returns. And they truly say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When's that going to happen? We'll go home and read Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14. Beloved, there are some things, some lessons that we need to learn. We need to learn. And the biggest lesson is this. Don't reject Jesus Christ. God has provided salvation for you and me. He has provided forgiveness of our sins. He has communicated that to us through His Word. We have it in almost every language in the world. We have it in English in all kinds of different versions so that, so that you can read it and understand it at whatever level you can, can comprehend. God has made salvation plain. He has made it clear who Jesus is. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Almighty. He is the only one through whom you and I can gain access into heaven. Jesus said it so clearly that night to his disciples. I am the way, he said, the truth and the life. 
no one comes to the Father except through me. The book of Acts, Peter says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but Jesus Christ. What you do with Jesus will determine your eternal destiny. And it will also determine your life as it remains on this earth. The judgment of God fell and some of those who were killed in that siege under Vespasian, which was completed under Titus when Vespasian died, those who were killed in that siege, surely some were the very same ones who cried out and said, let's kill Jesus so we don't lose our place and our nation. Let's kill Jesus so that we can stay in power. Let's get rid of Jesus so the Romans don't come and take our nation. Beloved, you might think you can outsmart God. You might think that you can get away with fooling God. It never works, ever. God knows. And God's justice is absolutely true and right and severe. But His mercy, His mercy is available now. His grace is available now. Don't turn away. Instead, be like that fellow, that, that publican who stood there out near the end of the entrance to the temple. And he peeped in and he saw what was going on and he said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what we need. That's how we can recognize Jesus as our King, by saying, God, I am a sinner. I'm apart from you. Forgive me of my sin and make me your child. And He will do that. He will forgive you. He will make you His child. And He will be your King. And you will be able to be in His kingdom forever and ever. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have made it so clear in Your Word that the issues of life and death depend on what we do with Jesus Christ. Father, probably most of us here today know Christ as our Savior, but I dare not assume that all do. There may be some who have learned to say the words and sing the songs and look the part, but deep down in their hearts, Lord, they're not trusting in You. They've never confessed their sin. They've never bowed the knee. Lord, I pray that today they will do that. Right now. Maybe there's some here, Father, that have never really made any kind of profession of faith, any consideration of You, but today, Lord, something is stirring in their heart and it's your spirit bringing conviction to them. I pray that they will not silence the spirit's work, but will instead cry out and say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, this is the day of grace. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of opportunity. And you gave opportunity to your people. 
that on that day that you rode into town as their king and they rejected you, you basically said that their opportunity was past and that the judgment was coming. Lord, I pray that no one here will let that day of salvation pass, pass and just sort of drift by it. But Lord, that they will come to you today to be saved. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for your abundant grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.